Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. It's short track racing is where all racing started. I mean, it's even the NASCAR world started short track racing back in the day. And we just want to tell a great story. to, And to, not a story. We want to tell factual guidelines. Hear the unfiltered, honest stories of how grassroots racers have and can achieve their racing goals. Fast Car to NASCAR. Hosted by NASCAR driver Mike Wallace. Welcome to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace, part of the Speed Sport Podcast Network presented by Crosley. My name is Jeff Kent. Strap yourself in, pull those belts tight, and we'll take you on a journey from short tracks across America to super speedways and everything in between. Today's guest, boy, what a resume. In 1985, became general manager of Atlanta International Raceway, now the Atlanta Motor Speedway. He joined the management team at Daytona International Speedway in 1986. After just 18 months, he became the GM at Talladega Super Speedway, became VP of International Speedway Corporation in just two years, and was promoted to president of the Talladega track in 1989, holding that position until 1994, when he became the new VP for competition for NASCAR. Named senior VP and COO in February 1999, and became the first person outside the France family to manage NASCAR's day-to-day operations. A year later, named president of NASCAR. Say hello to Mike Helton, and Mike Wallace, take it away. It's good to be here, guys. Thank you. Man, that is an impressive resume, Jeff. I know, and a a mouthful, if I must say. Yeah, Yeah. that that was certainly a fast track. (laughs) And, uh, Mike, I I won the Winston Racing Series back in 1990, uh, part of the whole NASCAR short track series, and I was thrilled to death. But ever since I've got an opportunity to to race full-time, you've been the boss. You're the man. And uh, we appreciate you taking the time being with us today. But I want to go back before that. says you you were born in Bristol, Virginia, raised in Bristol, Virginia. Where did your interest for motorsports come from? Well, you, even if you were on the periphery of, of following short track racing and then NASCAR as it was growing, uh, Bristol kind of put it in, in front of everybody in southwest Virginia and east Tennessee, and I just happened to be one of those that enjoyed racing as i was growing up and and the thrill of something with a motor in it that would go fast and and when the track 
came about in Bristol and you got exposed to what it looked like in real, then, then I was hooked, you know, from, from that moment on. And, and I don't know that I had a, um, a, a, a pathway that, that I thought I should follow. I just got caught up in the sport and had some opportunities. I was very lucky along the way. And most of that resume that, that, Jeff spelt through there on the intro and everything that was just being at the right place at the right time. So I didn't have any self designs growing up in Bristol to, to end up doing what I did throughout my life, but it really worked out good for uh, one of the, one of the luckiest race fans in the country. Mike, I, I see that you may have started out in, in broadcasting. Is that correct? Was it radio or TV or? <laughs> it was radio, but I, I wouldn't call it broadcasting because I've, <laughs> I don't, I've got a radio. I've got a radio face, but I don't have much of a say, radio People voice, have told but... me that my whole life, Jeff. You've got a face for radio, son. Good job. But I, I, there, there was a there was a gig in there with WOPIEM in, in Bristol, where and they carried all the races. And then back then, the races were Universal Racing Network, and and uh, then along come Motor Racing Network, and then different groups that would broadcast the races and. And uh, WOPI carried them there locally in, in Bristol, and I kind of had a short gig there with them. But but I I never put radio broadcasting on my resume anywhere because I don't want to make all the <laughs> real radio people mad. <laughs> well, the one thing I've heard l- lately is that radio face. So uh, you, you're doing well with that. <laughs> there's no money. There's no money in radio anyway. Is there? <laughs> So, Mike, you you grew up in the Virginia area, the Bristol area. How how did you end up getting to Atlanta Motor Speedway? I know you said you had a passion for motorsports yep. and loved it, but you know, I you mentioned you were at the right place, right time, lucky. However, you 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 had the stars aligned for your career. It looks like, and so we're in Bristol. How do you get to Atlanta Motor Speedway? So, in, in that era, in the seventies. A cup track like Bristol was 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 a lot like a weekly track today where the you know you you had special events which happened to be the cup races around Bristol there and uh, but but you, you didn't do a lot of work in between them you, you got ready for them you ran the weekend you got cleaned up from the weekend and then the track would sit there until the next special race well or special event so as 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 I got older and and was so drawn by the racetrack, I'd go down and hang out and I'd help different people that that had the track. Larry Carrier was a friend of my father's, and when he and Carl built Bristol originally, my father would go down there and and he was in the agricultural supply business, but he would be selling limestone and different things to the contractors that were building the track and me and my older brother would ride down with him and we'd hang out. So that's, I thought it was amazing watching them build the track and the track was compared to today's Bristol that we raced at a couple of weeks ago. It was, it was really simple. A couple of concrete uh, bench like bleachers on both sides of the front stretch and back stretch. And, and so it was very simple back then. But as the sport grew and I was getting older and I started following the sport more by getting a chance to go to Richmond or Martinsville or down to Charlotte from Bristol and 
I, I just got more and more caught up in it, and and I would help the folks, different people at the racetrack over a period of time, including going back to Ed Clark and Eddie Gossage, um, and I would help out at race time. Uh, I, I might be two weeks before, you know, we didn't have weed eaters back in, so you had to figure <laughs> out how to get rid of the weeds and, and make sure all the trash was picked up from the last one and everything, and then you'd paint and then get it all spruced up because you're going to have some folks come in. You wanted to be impressive. And, and then on race weekend, I'd help out. I'd help uh, different groups, uh, uh, Ed Clark and Eddie at the, the end there at, uh, in the press box in different places. And I got introduced by Tom Roberts, uh, TRPR out of Birmingham that worked at Atlanta Raceway. And he was going to go back to Birmingham and, and do some uh, stuff on his own. And, and he introduced me to Walt Nix, who owned half of Atlanta Raceway back then. And Walt and I struck up a conversation. And before I knew it, I put everything I owned in Bristol in the back of my car and drove to Atlanta and went to work for Atlanta Motor Speedway, which was Atlanta International Raceway back in AIR. And uh, that was at the turn of 79 and 80. And then I started working full-time at Atlanta and worked my way up to general manager by the mid-80s. And um, I just I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. Now, now I do have to back up just for a second. Did you actually run a weed eater and use a paintbrush? <laughs> yeah, because that, that I'm having a hard time visualizing that. Yeah. I, I, I used a paintbrush, but we didn't have weed eaters back then. I don't think they were invented when we were pulling weeds by hand. Oh, okay. I okay. mean, it's the, called the, Roundup. The that was up between the. No, it was it was hand up. It was. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 you didn't have all the technology. Now I did use a weed eater in Atlanta, because even in the early '80s in Atlanta, it it took everybody. It was all hands on deck, and you had to you had to get ready for a racetrack. And and I thought Bristol was. Uh, quite a spectacle to, to get up and running but atlanta was a mile and a half uh track and it took a whole lot more work to get ready cutting grass and painting walls and and but that's where i got introduced to weed eaters and i thought that was the greatest invention that came along since peanut butter when i first got to use a <laughs> weed eater so i'd do it by hand so. so some of the names you'd mentioned there larry carrier that uh, built the bristol motor speedway and then you most recently mentioned tr tom roberts from the pr Tom Roberts was doing what? How did you get hooked with him? I, I know Tom just from the days he was the PR guy for Rusty Wallace. I didn't know he went back what yeah. I call that far. So that uh, intriguing to me. So, so yeah, Tom, Tom was connected in Nashville, uh, left Nashville. And when I say connected in Nashville, when NASCAR was running the Nashville fairgrounds, and different people would have lease at the fairgrounds, and Tom was was in that mix, and that's where he got to know Ed Clark and Eddie Gossage. Eddie Gossage was also from Nashville. Ed Clark was on the Virginia side, so he he was in Bristol. Eddie Gossage was in Nashville, and there was a moment in the history of Bristol that Bristol was directly connected to Nashville fairgrounds, which seems ironic since Bristol's now the machine that's trying to put the fairgrounds back on the map, but uh, Larry and Carl Moore sold the Bristol track to Gary Baker and a guy by the name of Lanny Hester, and they had the fair board or the fair agreement to run those sports events at the fairground in Nashville. So Tom come out of Nashville, and he ended up going to Atlanta 
uh, full time, and he wanted to kind of go back. I said uh, Birmingham, but uh, I meant go back to Nashville and 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 go back into the mainstream. And he ended up the way he ended up with Rusty Wallace was Tom ended up with Miller Brewing when their motorsports program. Um, and, and Miller was doing so much in both NASCAR and IndyCar and IMSA. Uh, Tom went, Tom started contracting with them doing the PR and then he got hooked, to, hooked up with Rusty along the way. Uh, but there's so many names in that era that, that I enjoy sitting around talking to folks that are as old as I am about and all the different personalities and incredible personalities just like there are today. But there was some back then that, that truly laid the groundwork on the sport that we know it to be today. Give me one name, since you just said that, one name that pops out of your head over everybody at that time. Maybe not over everybody, but was was one of the ground layers for the sport because I'm one of the guys that were happy to be involved in something that had been built by a previous group of people. Who was, who uh, as your days you're coming through that, who was a major name? Yeah, and I don't know that I could name one. And okay. let me try to explain why. Because in that era, most tracks were independently owned. So we, we, we look around today and we look at the schedules. And I don't care if it's NASCAR Cup or Xfinity Trucks or Open Wheel, IndyCar, what have you. Most facilities today are part of a larger group. NASCAR owns its own racetracks. Speedway Motorsports, the Smith family owns a large group. So there's there's multiple facilities in an owner's group today. But in the 70s and 80s, most tracks were individualized. So Bristol was Larry Carrier and Carl Moore. Martinsville was the uh, uh, Campbell family. Sawyers ran Richmond. Uh, Enix Staley and, and Combs had North Wilkesboro. Uh, so uh, Walt Nix and L.G. DeWitt had Atlanta, but L.G. DeWitt also owned Rockingham. So most of these tracks were had their own individual culture, so to speak, to their ownerships. And and so I think that whole group of those names that I just went through were ones that that particularly the group out of North Carolina that helped establish NASCAR's roots and foundation that gave it the ability to grow what it was. Obviously, the France family built Daytona in the late 50s. Um, and then they ended up building Talladega 10 years later. Uh, and then there was a swing where there there was a, a moment where di- people were building different facilities, whether it was Atlanta, Michigan, College Station, Texas, Riverside, and different facilities that NASCAR got to grow on the shoulders of all of those developments. And they were all driven by different personalities. So when you ask me to pick one, from that era that's why i can't just pick one because i obviously i was heavily influenced by larry carrier and carl moore there in bristol but but just equally i think the whole sport and as we get to pay tribute now through hall of fame programs of people that truly built this sport there's a list that i can't do on two hands worth of fingers i got you that's that's amazing i'm glad you you made that so uh aware to me i didn't realize you know sometimes when you think about nascar you just think about the france family because that's what we're you know kind of brought up around but i love hearing the stories about these pre what you call track owners promoters that that they really help guide the sport early on then what you're saying compared 
Mike, com- compared to to the way things used to be, you you mentioned so many track owners. How many how many different track owners are there now? Has it consolidated some? Well, when you look at a, a NASCAR national schedule, uh, let's take the Cup for example, because it's 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 the NASCAR tracks, the Speedway Motorsports tracks, and then Dover Entertainment has Dover. The Mattioli family has Pocono, and and now Roger Penske has Indianapolis. So you can literally count the cup schedule facilities on on one hand. Now, as Ben kind of modifies our opportunities and schedules and you, you look at different opportunities like uh, WWR at Gateway and, and uh, the LA Stadium, that spreads out a little bit. But we're, we're more used to in the last 20 years of, of, of a small group of owners that have most of what we race on. Gotcha. We're going to take a time out here, Mike, and, and, and come back and chat some more because that's a good story so far. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the Speed Sport Podcast Network, presented by Crosley and NASCAR Digital Media. Welcome back to the Crosley Speed Sport Studios. This is Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. My name is Jeff Kent. Today's guest, former president of NASCAR, Mike Helton, telling some really cool stories. Mike, take it away. Mike, we're uh, we're intrigued so far in this first uh, segment of our show that just learning so many things that, you know, I didn't even know about all the different promoters and all the personalities and how they kind of form the sport. Uh, but the focus is on you. We, we've got you up through Atlanta Motor Speedway, but you got a real quick progression in your resume through NASCAR. Can you take us from Atlanta Motor Speedway and how you moved on from there? Yeah, so I got to Atlanta and then was thoroughly entrenched in the sport. I could have spent the rest of my life or career working at Atlanta Motor Speedway and, and was happy. Uh, but there was there was that uh, uniqueness, I guess, in the sport. And and I was watching the the sport grow. And the one group that got up every day and relied on the success of the sport and, and making all the pieces work together uh, was the France family because that's all they did. They ran the sanctioned body through NASCAR, but they had Daytona, uh, Talladega, they ended up uh, with Darlington. They went in with Corning Glass and opened up Watkins Glen, but they they didn't have any outside distractions. They were focused on motorsports. Uh, Walt Nix was a uh, aircraft salesman. L.G. DeWitt had peach farms and trucking companies. Uh, Clay Earls in Martinsville uh, was was pretty much reliant on Martinsville. He and his family, similar to the Sawyers in Richmond. But, but I was sitting there trying to figure out where I would go next or what I would do. And Walt and LG were talking about maybe selling their facility, and I didn't know where that was going to end up. And I had the opportunity to talk with some folks in NASCAR and, and got the chance to make the decision to come work for the France family on the ISC side to start with and, and took that opportunity. So after the one all-star race, in 1986 that didn't run in Charlotte for so long until we moved it around a little bit in the last couple of years. Uh, that was in May, Mother's Day. And and right after that race, uh, packed up everything and came to Daytona Beach and went to work for the France family and, and was here working with some different folks. John Riddle was the 
president of the track, and Larry Belusky was in charge of communications and had a lot of characters around. And I got to know Bill and Jim closely, uh, Jim Foster, different players on the ISC side and the NASCAR side. Uh, and really, I thought I knew a lot in the time that I've spent in the sport, but that was the beginning of drinking from the fire hydrant because that was just amazing to to, to be involved in a sport at this level and, and got the chance to go to Talladega, which which is a, one of my favorite facilities to go to. Uh, got the chance to go up there and work for a few years, and I could have retired very happily in Talladega uh, over a period of time. But uh, when when the, Les Richter, and Mike, you'll remember Les, mm-hmm. um, he was vice president of competition, and, and Roger was wanting to develop uh, Auto Club Speedway with California. And then Les was from that area, being a former Ram football player, and he worked at Road Atlanta, and he'd come to work on the NASCAR side, and, and he, he was going to go back into Southern California and help Roger because they had a close relationship through IROC and different things. And uh, so Bill asked me if I'd want to come to the NASCAR side, and I, I learned early on in the relationship with the French family not to have, you know, not to – if they asked me to do something, I, I don't even have to think about it. I know <laughs> I've done no better than that. So, <laughs> so I told him, I said, "You you tell me what you want me to do, and, I, and we'll do it." And so we we ended up back in NASCAR. I mean, back in Daytona Beach, and and uh, we kind of turned the track over in '93. Grant Lynch came from Sports Marketing Enterprise, which was the Winston arm of marketing and promoting. Grant came to Talladega, and I spent some time with him and got him up and running in Talladega. And then I came on back to the NASCAR side and took Les Richter's place on the NASCAR side. I got you. Well, Mike, a real important thing to me is gonna when you came from Bristol, I'm backing the story up for a little bit, you loaded all your stuff and your possessions in your car to go from Bristol to Atlanta. Then you loaded everything in your car from Atlanta to Daytona. Which one was the nicer car? <laughs> <laughs> Well, they got nicer as they got loaded up later on. Yeah, they, and I had a I had to go to a U-Haul trailer from Atlanta to Daytona, and then and then uh, had to use a moving van from Talladega back to Daytona. So it, it, it kind of grew with us. We, it's, it's been fun talking to people over this show that uh, their their first vehicle they moved their life possessions in was something simple and basic, and as they got to moving, it got bigger and bigger along the way. Uh, so, so you I think that's the way the world works? Yeah, it's good, right? I mean, that's what we're all striving that's to right. do: trying to make everything bigger, better, greater. So, Mr. France or the France family says, "Mike, we want you to to run the race." Am I understanding this? You're going to be the competition director. Is is that something you just all you kind of knew already, or you adapted to it quickly? Well, you 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 think you did or well, I thought I did I thought I said okay I, you know I've worked for the France family now for six seven years and uh, had a great relationship with with uh, uh, particularly Bill Jr. who was just you know all-encompassing when you sit around him at dinner or breakfast or go different trips with him and everything you it was like riding around with Encyclopedia Britannica but and nobody knows what that is. It's just Google today. <laughs> back in the old days, Wikipedia. There was a shelf. Yeah, there was a shelf full of books that you had to go look stuff up in. But you'd sit there with Bill Jr. and Jim France, and even Bill Senior. and Annie B. for a few years 
prior to that. But you sit around and you spend some time socially with Bill and Jim, and you'd hear the stories about why this was that and how this got done there. I thought by the time I'd gone to Talladega and ran that track for a handful of years or two, and uh, that that I kind of knew what was going on. But when I came on to the NASCAR side, I mean, it was like holy mackerel! I don't know squat. <laughs> so uh, that so and I'd already got I, I'd already gotten to know some of the you know. Richard Childress or Richard Petty or Bud Moore, uh, folks in the garage area from from them coming to racetracks. But the, what I didn't realize was they'd come to me needing credentials or tickets or something, and so they were always real nice to me. When I came on the NASCAR <laughs> side, all of a sudden they were they was it was like them against the government, and so it was quite the experience to come over and 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 learn the responsibility of the sanctioning body side which was uh, another big learning curve and so that the average race fan that might be listening understands if you're the vp for competition for nascar now what is what does that actually entail okay so in that era the i don't know how many employees nascar had but it wasn't many we might have had 90 employees total so when I took Les Richter's place, there was basically uh, a vice president of competition. And the vice president of competition would do the membership applications, the sanctioning agreements, the rule book administration, and officiating at the racetrack. Uh, all of those components came under one person. But there were good lieutenants everywhere else. Gary Nelson was Cup Series director. Uh, Robert Black was a Bush Series director, which is now Xfinity. Uh, uh, different people were running. And I remember when we started the Truck Series, uh, I'd already come to the NASCAR side when NASCAR began the Truck Series. But but even on the the, the weekly and the regional programs were very significant uh, and still are. Uh, there was a lot of work around the modifieds or uh, Mike, you'll remember the Bush North and the Bush East and, and Winston West and all the different programs that we had that got us down to the weekly regional series, uh, the uh, programs. And we were lucky that RJ Reynolds was involved with us then. And uh, that's why even today you go to a racetrack and you see a lot of red, white paint, but, but uh, you know, there, there was a, we all kind of did, a lot of different tasks then to, to get it all done. But uh, but more specifically to answer your question, Jeff, the uh, vice president of competition, and I didn't do it all by myself. There was, was a few folks that, that helped, but I would, I would tell you there was only three or four on the administration side. You'd, you'd, you'd have the responsibility of the membership applications, uh, the, the staff that would sell the memberships at the weekly track and the local track and at the national series. Um, then you put the calendar together, you do the schedule, you do the sanction agreements with all the racetracks from cup all the way down to weekly. And you would also manage the rule book program with, with different series from cup down to weekly. Uh, so it was, it was a pretty good sized bucket to, to feed from. And it was a heck of a, uh, an education trying to get caught up on all the components and how all they how all those balanced with each other and and from from insurance to ticket sales to sanctioning fees to to all of that 
car numbers. You know, the vice president of competition would would manage car numbers back then. So it uh, it, it was a it was a fun time, and I didn't realize it. Jeff, I, I never realized that the vice president competition entailed so much. Right. I thought it was just the guy that kind of made the rules for the race car. I mean, that's a full plate, right? There. Mike, that uh, all the sanction agreements, all the tickets they are, you know, competition license and things like that. It was amazing that you had to go through. Or your staff went through all that. Uh, talking about well, and, and and we still do. It's just it's now that we've got we're we're able to disseminate that responsibility and the technology helps. I had big old three ring binders at my desk when I was in that seat that had different agreements in it and I'd have to go you know now you can pull it up on a computer but I, I had to go to three ring binders and look for information uh, when I needed to have conversations about any of those elements or components but so you can hear people had, saying we, now here comes Mike and he's carrying that binder <laughs> <laughs> And you can't stick it in your hip pocket either. I mean, yeah. You gotta, gotta, carry, you gotta it, carry that thing around the rule book. The rule book you can put in your hip pocket back in. So those three ring binders that were back in the day are those archived somewhere? Are they sitting somewhere? Or you got just disposed yeah, of those? Yeah, I, I think I, I, no. I think we've kept them in the archives down here. And uh, if they're not in the Hall of Fame in Charlotte, I think we've kept them in our archives down here because it's uh, it's it's. And and I hope we have. I, I asked our folks to keep them because somebody someday will be able to tell a big story about this is this is how we used to do it. Absolutely. And, and there's literally notes in these books about putting a schedule together and and um, and the complexities of all of that, which was just what we did. But and it's still complex. But it's it's uh, there's a lot larger group working on all these components as it should be. Yeah, now now you can put it all on a zip drive, but it, it's amazing to hear all the stories there. So, you've uh, you've progressed through the uh, NASCAR competition director. You you've handled all that. You you were, like I said early in the show. Far as I know, you always been the boss. Very polite, very but very direct. Uh, you, you know, Jeff, you always knew who the boss was at the racetrack, and that's right. Mike in a, in a very nice, direct way. So. So what changes that you decide it's time to uh, get or NASCAR decides they need to promote you on from the competition director to your next position? So the next step was senior vice president, chief operating officer. And NASCAR up to that point had not had an SVP or a COO. It, it, it went just from vice president of competition and then uh, vice president of administration and and which was Jim Hunter and Dennis Hooth and different characters along the way uh, to to Bill who was president of the company. So I think what Bill and Jim were were seeing was the growth of the sport and the responsibility for NASCAR to to step up to the plate and do it. Uh, we had gotten more into involved into marketing where we had relied on R.J. Reynolds and that was evolving and changing. We took on more of a, a marketing role internally. Uh, we, we developed a truck series. We, so different things were growing around us and, and Bill and Jim, uh, saw that and then wanted to expand, uh, the, the, the responsibility, the so the shoulders that all that responsibility is set on. So they ended up creating the chief operating officer and I got to be, uh, that first, one and 
um, and and picked up a couple more people on the competition side while I still had an oversight to it because that was truly at the core of what we did. And um, but we were beginning to grow a little bit, or not a little bit. We were growing a lot, but the responsibilities were were becoming to be more significant and and that if if there were 90 employees when I came here 5 years into it there was probably 150 because that that was an era where NASCAR was having the opportunity to expand and grow and you know our our racetracks were numbers were getting bigger our uh seats at the racetracks were growing and TV audience was coming along and following us and it was it was a good era to be again, just at the right place at the right time. Yeah, that was in figure nineteen ninety nine. You were named senior VP and COO. Maybe when we come back, we could talk a little bit about that incredible growth that NASCAR experienced in the nineties and the early two thousands, and we'll go from there. You're listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the Speed Sport Podcast Network, presented by Crosley and NASCAR Digital Media. Welcome back to the Crosley Speed Sports Studios. This is Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. My name is Jeff Kent. Today's guest, former president of NASCAR, Mike Helton. When we last left, Mike had become uh, the senior VP and COO in February of 1999 for NASCAR. And as we all know as Rays fans, that's when NASCAR, certainly in the 90s from, say, 94 on, and for the next 10 years or so, NASCAR grew so fast and so much. Mike Wallace? Well, that's because I started cup racing in 1994. <laughs> well, <laughs> there you go. So, so, so them, Mike said everybody had a part to do with it, you know? So. That's right. <laughs> but, We're uh, not going to the NASCAR race. We're going to see Mike Wallace. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. I agree with you. But uh, Mike, to chime in at that, we'll, you're, the bo- you're the bigger boss at that point. And you, you just were guiding the sh- I call it guiding the ship for incredible growth. What happened in those years that just I remember coming from St. Louis, Missouri, and so happy to drive race cars. My brother had been down here; he was a champion, and younger brother. And I mean, it was just it was so incredible. There were so many people at the racetracks. How did you make that happen, and how did you keep it going? Well, so uh, again. You know, from a personal aspect, it was, I wasn't the driver of all that. I was I was just hanging on for dear life in a lot of cases, but also just being in the right place at the right time. But if you if you look at the history of our sport in the 80s with the advent of cable television and cable companies needed content, and, and if, as late as the, I want to say, 87, 88, 89, not every NASCAR race was televised like we know it is today or distributed however it's distributed today back then. And so uh, Jeff Radio was important back then because that's <laughs> that's truly the way you could follow the sport live. But but with the advent of cable and, and particularly cable that was growing in the rural marketplaces and cable companies needed content, NASCAR was good content. NASCAR was good sports content, live Un, unveiling sports content and and that exposure from being able to take advantage of and have that opportunity started growing the the following of the sport so what now become in the 90s a growth moment for us was if you look back at our calendar um 
we went to Indianapolis in 94. We got to New Hampshire in that era, a little bit later than 94, but uh, they are building tracks in Vegas. Now, now I'm talking between the mid nineties to the, to the, to the turn of the, truly the turn of the century from 2000. But there, there, there's because of the popularity and the expansion and the exposure of the sport, there's other people looking at it and saying, Hey, I want to be part of this. So there's a track being built out in Vegas. There's a track being built in Southern California. It's up and running. There's uh, a track in Homestead, Florida. That's that's in the Miami marketplace. That's coming up out of the ground. Uh, there's a place coming up out of the ground by the end of the nineties in, in Chicago and Kansas city. So what our sport was doing, it was evolving from a rural sport to an urban sport where, where the football, basketball, baseball guys were truly urban sports. What NASCAR was able to do then to go into these marketplaces where the, the, the stick and ball guys had been for some time. And that, that was a huge moment for us to grow the sport and, and, have have the ability to play out our sport in front of more eyeballs and more people sitting in grandstands as well as more and more people watching it on television so that that whole band of opportunity through there i think is is one that that we look back 100 years from now those that are still around or or 50 years from now i should say uh and we'll look and see that band of time as as one of those big opportunities for NASCAR's growth. Well, uh, that's incredible through that cycle. As we're halfway through our final session here, I hear NASCAR fans make a comment now and then, and uh, besides complimenting the sport, they go, NASCAR's changed. And I, and I ask the people, I go, what do you mean? I says, we, we primarily race at all the same racetracks that we have for years. So the surface we race on is the same, but they go, what's well, changed? Do you hear that, Mike? And, and do you acknowledge that? The, I mean, is there anything that's really changed in the sport besides the type of cars and stuff like that? Well, yeah, uh, and, and I do hear it. And and I acknowledge the fact that, yeah, I we, we have, but uh, there's so many core components that have not, but there are so many components that, that have changed. And I don't know how you can not do that. I don't know how you can not change and, and be relevant and, and keep up. And, 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 you know, I was, I was a race fan back in the sixties. So when somebody walks up to me and says, well, I wish we could do it like we did in the old days. Well, heck, so do I, but we can't, uh, but you, you, and you just can't go back. And if we, you know, I look at my own personal history. You look at your own personal history, Jeff, yours, and you look back. And when you're in grade school and high school and and so forth, you know, you you can't go back to those times and replicate them. So life changes on you. And so I think NASCAR has been a pretty good steward of of doing both, sticking to the core that that built the sport. But at the same time, make some changes that 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 jazz it up or or make it interesting or or keep the appeal of competitors and car owners and 
racetracks and fans to follow the sport. And that always is important, but it doesn't always fit everybody's definition of what you should do. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt that every major uh, sports league, um, you know, is, is trying different things, trying to grow their sport, right? The NFL is playing football games in Europe, and the NBA is playing, for, you know, basketball games here and there. So in, in the, I think it was early 70s, maybe around 1974, NASCAR shortened um, the schedule from 40-something races to 30-something races. They revamped the point system. Um, so those were pretty sweeping changes. Would NASCAR consider doing that again in order to, uh, you know, the, the, for the betterment of the sport right now? Well, I think in some ways we have. You can point to the playoff. You could, uh, you know, we've modern technology and transportation means and everything have given us ability to go from a, a 27, 28 race schedule to a 36 race schedule on the cup side and uh but i think along the way when you look at it we've we've made some changes not as drastic as the the reducing the schedule down to what we did in the 70s and the point system but we've changed the point system i mean we've changed right uh the playoff for the championships we've done those things along the way uh and they come with mixed reviews but i think at the end of the day they come with you know, people saying that, that that that's a little more interesting. It, it it I think it's on us to figure out how to do it in a way that people can understand it. Uh, and you know, maybe there's a better way to communicate it or simplify it to where. Uh, but if you look at the points structure we had in the mid '70s until we changed it here, to, ten years ago, whatever it was, to the single point position, which was a little bit easier to calculate. Um, you know, that I think along the way we've made modern tweaks to, again, without disturbing the core of the sport, um, to, to where it, it made it interesting and, and still appealed to drivers to want to be a NASCAR driver and, and uh, fans to want to be NASCAR fans. Right. Well, just last week there was, there was some big news out of NASCAR that they were going to run the Clash or an exhibition race at the L.A. Coliseum. I guess they're going to construct a quarter-mile racetrack inside the L.A. Coliseum, and they're going to run NASCAR stock cars as an exhibition race in February next year. Um, your thoughts on that? I think it's I think it's exciting. I think the you know there, there's a lot of buzz in favor of it. A lot more buzz that says, man, that's going to be fun to watch or interesting or how about that than there is, why in the world are we doing it? And I think that's 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 what NASCAR has to do nowadays. I think we've learned the last couple of years, some of it forced by COVID, but some of it by design, you know, Ben Kennedy's uh, vision of what what the sport may look like I think is very relevant and very important to NASCAR. And then and he's fourth-generation France family, so it's still in the hands and the custody of, of the founding family of this sport. And But, oh, by the way, it comes from a, a, a younger set of lenses to look through it, and it comes from a guy that sat in a driver's seat and won some races on the national series level. So uh, I couldn't think that there's no script we could have written to have put our 
future of our sport in the better hands. And Ben's got some great thoughts and ideas, and I, I enjoy following them because he's, he's I think, uh, opening up eyes all around the office complexes, but he's also opening up eyes in the industry. And the L.A. Coliseum piece of that is, is it's a holy cow moment. I mean, it's it's who who come up with that? What in the world? And, but <laughs> well, that then was when you a... digest it. <laughs> but when you digest it, is it? You know, the only the 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 funny thing that comes out of North Carolina says, "Well, why have we got to go L.A. to watch a Bowman Gray race?" Because that's kind of what it's going <laughs> to be like. But, but it, it's you know, it, and I actually was at the L.A. Stadium in the '80s. I, I got the chance to go out there and help Furman Bisher, who was sports editor at the Journal Constitution in Atlanta when I was at Atlanta Raceway, and I went out and helped him when they had the Olympics at that stadium uh, in the '80s to help them with the media credentials and everything. But it's 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 been modernized. It's it's a it's a incredible heritage to that footprint, and for NASCAR to be able to go to it and race on it, I think is is significant and powerful. Is the time that we got to go to Indianapolis and run at the Brickyard. Well, Mike, I, we're we're getting close to running out of time here, and I don't want to thank you yet for being on the show because I got a couple more questions. But I'm really, really excited about this LA event, and I just want to clarify: you're saying is Ben Kennedy kind of the leading uh, person at NASCAR now that's looking out? You know, I raced against Ben a little bit, and then he went to the yeah. administrative side. Is he the the bright mind that's out there looking for new and exciting things to do? He, he's the he's the younger heartbeat that sits around with us old guys and brings us to the realization that there is a different way of doing things. So he he's he is our he's our he's heavily involved on the competition side, but he's also heavily involved. If you remember earlier, we were talking about what the vice president of competition had to do with sanctions and scheduling and everything. So Ben is now in charge of the sanctions and the schedules, and and what the national series and and the rest of the motorsports program that nascar has under its umbrella uh, pieces together uh, well mike you've made the show incredibly exciting i've learned a tremendous amount i want to thank you for the the la coliseum pass on to ben that's going to be exciting but i really want to take it for a quick minute to our hometown of st louis missouri worldwide technologies a gateway is going to have a race yeah. that's really exciting yeah. especially with Anheuser-Busch right there in the backyard has been a big part of NASCAR racing. Has been. And you remember when we ran our first Ben Bush series, it's Xfinity now there. And and uh, that's, a, that's a big opportunity. And there again, that's Ben Kennedy who raced there. Uh, and uh, knowing the St. Louis marketplace and the Midwestern fans and, and uh, the heritage in that area, a lot of which – has been built by you and your family name, the Schraders and others, but, but uh, you, you can't go into that area and not know about the Wallace family. And, and that's, as, that's as important to us as going into North Carolina and knowing about the Earnhardts of the Petties. Well, I appreciate that very much. It's very nice of you, and we love to be part of the St. Louis deal. But I want to take a few moments and just say thank you very, very much for your time. You've uh, you've been a great guy through my whole career of NASCAR racing. You just shed a whole lot of new insight to Jeff and I, and uh, hopefully someday you'll be willing to come back and talk to us. If you guys need any professionalism, Jeff and I are on board to give you any consulting you might need. I understand. Thank you for that option. <laughs> now, just that you know, that's not made to everybody. That's just... I understand. Thank well, you, Mike. Thank you once very... again, Mike. 
You've been listening to Fast Car. Very privileged. Thank you. <laughs> Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace on the Speed Sport Podcast Network, presented by Crosley and NASCAR Digital Media. Welcome back to the Crosley Speed Sports Studios. This is Fast Car to NASCAR with Mike Wallace. My name is Jeff Kent. Boy, we just wrapped up with Mike Helton, former president of NASCAR. Man, that was really, really educational. I think it was, Jeff. You know, we 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 looked at each other and said we need to talk about it when Mike left. And I just, I was amazed of all the things and the personalities of the people we don't really know a lot about in the early days of NASCAR and how it got to it. And that uh, I was amazed by the vice president of competition, all the things that fall under that title. And how that job has changed, too, because he's talking about the three-ring binder. Now everything's done on, on computers. I mean, think about it. The guy, you know, made it to big time in, in NASCAR in 1985 at the Atlanta Motor Speedway, Daytona, Talladega, then on to NASCAR, VP for competition, um, senior VP and COO in February of 1999. And there were so many things going on in NASCAR, so much growth, where... Ticket sales were amazing, and they couldn't build enough grandstands. And, and, you know, so so much has changed, but there was so much growth in NASCAR with Mike Helton there. Um, I mean, it, it's just amazing. It is amazing, but I liked when you brought back, you know, the old the 70s items about the uh, points and things like that. And he was saying, look, yeah, we're, we're looking to change, but we got to keep that little bit of old-style heritage trying to blend the two, the avid race fan to the new race fan, and sometimes it's hard to do. And I like what he said, too, where they've got some younger minds um, with NASCAR in these meetings, in their strategy sessions and whatnot, telling the old guys, hey, just because you did it that way back then doesn't mean it's the right way. There are new ways to think, and that's why, you know, as, as race fans, we like to criticize every time NASCAR does something. Why are they running so many damn road courses? Why The L.A. Coliseum? Are you kidding me? But I, I, I thought his answer on that was, was pretty cool, that they have to continue uh, to find ways to change. If you're not changing or not trying to get better, you're probably getting worse. Yeah, you know, that made me think about our Tony Stewart conversation about the... Uh, I think he called it the liar's corner at the Dairy Queen where they sit around and discuss how to change things and the good, the bad. I wonder if that's like NASCAR. I wonder if they sit in a little in a room with some chairs and have that or it's a little bit more upbeat. You know? Well, the next time we talk to Mike, I just want to let him know that, that, that I would like to volunteer as the next commissioner of NASCAR or VP of competition or whatever. Because I have some great ideas. I, I think you do, and I think we put it out there for him, right? <laughs> I hope to hear from him soon, but I won't hold my breath. Well, I think we had a great show. I'm really excited. We had Mike Helton on. He explained a lot. Jeff Kent, the professional you are, take us home. Thank you, Mike Wallace. You've been listening to Fast Car to NASCAR with the aforementioned Mike Wallace on the Speed Sport Podcast Network presented by Crosley and NASCAR Digital Media. We'll see you next week.